this morning we're starting a new teaching series in the book of Daniel. This term we're going to work our way through, through the whole book of Daniel. And it's my privilege to kind of help us to get our heads around that and understand it and think about uh, what God's teaching us from Daniel and what difference it should make in our lives. So uh, strap yourselves in for an adventure. And look, if, honestly, if you haven't already read Daniel, uh, why not set aside some time this week to do it? You could probably knock the whole thing over in about an hour. And seriously, it is a cracking read. So uh, go home this week and read through all of Daniel. You won't be disappointed. Now, the way that you interpret an event, it depends on your point of view. So, for example, uh, for, pretty, for, for four weeks in June, uh, Sarah, that's my wife, uh, she was in Indonesia visiting her brother and his family. She got home last Sunday afternoon. And last Sunday morning, I was talking to a friend, and my friend said this. They said, wow, is Sarah really home this afternoon? That's gone so quickly. And I was thinking, no, it has not gone quickly. <laughs> See, from my friend's point of view, they heard that Sarah was going away. And then for the next few weeks, they just kind of forgot about it and went about their life. And then the next thing they heard was that Sarah was coming back. For them, from their point of view, it all seemed to happen so quickly. But for me, from my point of view, as soon as Sarah left, I started missing her. And I missed her every day for the next four weeks. And on top of that, I still had the kids to look after. And there was cooking to do. And there was uh, shopping to buy. And there were dishes to wash. And there were clothes to clean. And there were floors that needed to be vacuumed. And it just went on and on and on. It was probably the longest four weeks of my life. Now, it's funny how you can see the same event from two completely different perspectives. And the way that you feel about that event, the way that you interpret it, it depends on your point of view. And as it turns out, it's the same with the events described in the opening two chapters of Daniel. And the way that you feel about these events, the way that you interpret them, it depends on your point of view. So have a look at Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, from one point of view, that is a hopeless and pathetic opening to the book. The kingdom of Judah has been overrun by the Babylonians. God's king, Jehoiakim, has been defeated and captured as a prisoner of war. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is plundering the temple in Jerusalem. If you were to read more about those events in some of the other Old Testament books, like 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and Lamentations, you would discover that Nebuchadnezzar's siege against Jerusalem was absolutely horrific. It caused a famine in Jerusalem that was so bad that the people of Jerusalem resorted to cannibalism just so as to survive. And eventually, when the Babylonian army broke through the walls of Jerusalem, the people of Israel were powerless to fight back. And so they just watched on as, uh, as relatives were killed, children were slaughtered, sisters were raped, and pregnant wives had the, uh, were disemboweled. It seemed as though Yahweh, the God of Israel, was done, right? Finished. Defeated powerless, nowhere to be seen, and from that point of view, things looked bleak. 
Things looked hopeless. From that point of view, any surviving Israelites would have been right to panic. They would have been right to panic about their future. They would have been right to panic about the state of the world and where things were headed. But there is another point of view, another way of looking at these events. And it's the way that the book of Daniel wants us to see them. The way that the book of Daniel wants us to look at these events is to realise that despite appearances, God is actually in complete control here. So how do these opening couple of verses of Daniel help us to see that God is in control? We'll have a look again. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So look, nothing really new there. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has come to Jerusalem to attack it. But look at what comes next, verse 2. And the Lord was powerless to stop Jehoiakim, king of Judah, being delivered into his hand. That's not what it says, is it? What does it say? And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The reason that Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jehoiakim was what? It was that God handed him over. From Daniel's point of view, God is in complete control of these events. And so rather than responding with panic, Daniel responds with calm confidence. He responds with complete trust in God. And look, as we work our way through Daniel, this term, over and over and over again, we are going to be encouraged to see things from this same point of view. We are going to be encouraged to take this perspective. The clear, consistent message of the book of Daniel is that in everything that happens, God is in control. And this morning, you can see that truth worked out in the rest of chapter 1. Although, from King Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, it's not God who's in control. It's him, right? He's in control. In the first couple of verses, we read about how Nebuchadnezzar captured Jehoiakim and he plundered the temple in Jerusalem. Well, from verse 3 onward, Nebuchadnezzar now tries to exert control over God and over his people. He's got a plan to essentially take Israel's future leaders and turn them into Babylonians who serve the gods of Babylon. Let's pick it up from verse 3. The first step in Nebuchadnezzar's plan is to take Israel's future leaders. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So Nebuchadnezzar gets the best teenagers from Israel, the future leaders, and he starts to indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture. Verse 4. Ashpenaz was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. So these teenage boys were to be taken away for three years of intensive, immersive training in Babylonian culture, right? They were to eat Babylonian food. They were to learn the Babylonian language. They were to study Babylonian literature. And then once they'd been Babylonianized, right, once they'd been turned into Babylonians, then they were to enter the king's service. But that's not all. From Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, his control extends not only to determining which king they serve, 
but his control even extends to determining which gods they'll serve. See, in verse 6, we're told that among these teenage boys were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And verse 7, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now, for Nebuchadnezzar to give these young men new names, it unambiguously indicated that they now belong to him. He was their king, their allegiance was to him, but even more than that, these new names were deliberately picked so as to show that these young men now belong to the gods of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar deliberately changed their names from names that glorified Yahweh to names that spoke about the Babylonian gods. So, for instance, the name Daniel, it means God is my judge, but the name Belteshazzar means may Bel protect his life. Bel was one of the Babylonian gods. From Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, he is in complete control here. He controls where these guys live. He controls what they eat. He controls what they learn. He controls which king they serve. He even controls which gods they worship. And look, you've got to wonder, don't you, what hope do these teenage boys possibly have? Their families have been slaughtered. Their city has been destroyed. They are far away from home. They're being forced to serve a pagan king who rules over the greatest empire that has ever existed. Viewing things from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, these young men had every reason to be scared and afraid. They had every reason to panic and to give in. All of which makes what happens in the next verse absolutely astonishing. Have a look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. That's amazing. This is Daniel, a teenage boy, all alone in a foreign country, being commanded to serve a powerful pagan king and rather than panicking and giving in, he remains calmly confident in God and he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, look, just as a kind of aside at this point, I wonder why Daniel chose to say no to the food and wine. I mean, he accepted being deported to Babylon. He accepted being re-educated. He accepted getting a new name. In a few verses' time, we're going to find out that he accepts entering the king's service. Why won't he accept the king's food and wine? Could it be because the food had been offered to idols? Possibly. Could it be because the meat was from unclean animals? Maybe. Was it because King Nebuchadnezzar's food was just really unhealthy? Like ancient McDonald's or something? Possibly. Was it because he realised that accepting the king's food and wine would have symbolised his dependence upon the king and his commitment to him? That's probably more likely, but look, the fact is we're not told why Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food and wine. What we are told, though, and therefore what is the important thing in this chapter, is that God is in control. See, from one point of view, Nebuchadnezzar seems to be controlling things. He's giving orders, but Daniel sees things from a different perspective. 
He sees things from God's point of view. Daniel's perspective is that in everything that happens, God is in control, and that truth is worked out in the next few verses. For instance, in the very next verse, verse 9, we are told that God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. And so even though this official is afraid of Nebuchadnezzar, even though he's scared that if he doesn't make Daniel eat the king's food, he might get his head cut off, when Daniel suggests that they kind of trial eating vegetables and water for a while, in verse 14 we're told that the chief official agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Even though it put his life at risk, the chief official agreed to what Daniel suggested because God is in control and God had caused him to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. And what's more, in verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So you see, Nebuchadnezzar tried to exert his control by ordering Daniel and his friends to eat his food, but God ended up exerting his control by causing the official to allow Daniel and his friends to eat vegetables instead. And in the end, verse 16, the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. See, the point is, God is quite clearly in control. A fact that's highlighted again in the next verse. Verse 17, have a look. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to re-educate these guys, right? He was going to give them knowledge and understanding. But what ends up happening is that God gives them knowledge and understanding of all kinds. And in verse 19, when the king talked with them, he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Getting the point here? Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in control, but the fact is he isn't. God is. God is the one who made Daniel and his friends healthier than the others. God is the one who made Daniel and his friends smarter than anyone else. In everything that is happening here, God is in control of it. And just in case there's any doubt, we get reminded again in the very last verse of the chapter. Have a look at verse 21. It says, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, Cyrus was the first king of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire smashed the Babylonian Empire. What that verse is saying is that Daniel will outlive King Nebuchadnezzar. When the mighty Babylonian Empire and the gods of Babylon have been smashed to the ground... Daniel and his God, our God, will remain standing because he is in control of all things. So, what do we learn from Daniel 1? Two things. Number one, God is in control. For Daniel and for us, sometimes it can be hard to remember that. Sometimes, from our point of view, it can be hard to see how God is involved in the world around us. It can be hard to see how he's in control. 
And so the message of Daniel is a good one for us. Because the clear and consistent message of the book of Daniel is that in everything that happens, God's in control. And we've seen that in chapter 1, haven't we? In the things that happened in Daniel's life, God was behind it all, orchestrating events according to his plan. But you know, that's not just true of Daniel's life. It's true of all of history, and it is especially true of the cross. It's at the cross where we see most clearly that God is in control. Now, sure, from one point of view, when Jesus died on the cross, it looked like the kings of this world were in control, didn't it? The Pharisees and the other religious leaders, they arrested Jesus. Then they handed him over to the Roman governor, Pilate, and to King Herod, who condemned Jesus to be killed. And then they gave him to the Roman soldiers who crucified him. It looked like the kings of this world were in control. But here's another point of view. This is what Peter says about it in Acts chapter 2. This man, that's talking about Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. See what that's saying? The fact is that God was in complete control. Each of those people who were involved in Jesus being crucified, they were only doing what God had planned beforehand would happen. Just like how God handed King Jehoiakim over in Daniel 1, he also handed Jesus over to die. It wasn't an accident. God was in complete control and it was all according to God's plan. God deliberately handed Jesus over so that he could die in our place, so that his death could pay for our sins, so that we could be forgiven, rescued, saved. What we've seen in Daniel chapter 1 and what we see even more clearly at the cross is that God is in control. The second thing we learn from Daniel 1 is that Daniel himself is a good example for us. Daniel was able to trust God fully. Daniel was able to stand with God and to not compromise despite incredibly difficult circumstances. And if he could do that, how much more should we be able to trust God fully and to stand with him despite our circumstances? Because Daniel only had a tiny little bit of the picture We've got the whole thing. We know God's plans. And more than that, we have seen them fulfilled in Jesus. We know that Jesus died and we know that he rose again. We know that Jesus wins. We know that his kingdom is one that will never end. It will never be defeated. And so since we know that, how much more can we stand with God when we are pressured to compromise? So friends, like Daniel... Let's resolve here and now to trust God fully. Like Daniel, let's resolve now to stand with God. Let's resolve now to live for him. It is always worth it. And you will never regret choosing to stand with God because he is in control. We've seen it in Daniel 1. And we've seen it most clearly at the cross. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, there's lots of times in our life when, uh, when circumstances are difficult and perhaps we're tempted to, to feel like things are out of control and to panic and to give in and to deny that we're, we know Jesus. There's lots of things that make us tempted to do that. And so we're really, really thankful for the reminder here in Daniel 1 that you are in control. You were in control when Jerusalem was surrounded and destroyed. You were in control when Daniel and his friends were commanded to worship, to to serve King Nebuchadnezzar and to worship the gods of Babylon. And you were in control when Jesus was nailed to the cross and died. Father, you are in control of all things. And so, armed with that knowledge and that confidence that comes with knowing that you're in control, the confidence that comes with the death and resurrection of Jesus, help us please to trust you fully. Help us to stand with you and to not compromise when things get hard. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.